Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Laura Harrison, a returning uh, guest on Teaching Matters. She's an accomplished teacher, researcher, and also an associate professor in the Ohio University Patton College of Education. Laura recently published a book titled Teaching Struggling Students, Lessons Learned from Both Sides of the Classroom. The book is under the imprint of Paul Grave McMillan with a 2019 copyright. A link to the book is accompanying the podcast. Laura, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. So I really enjoyed reading your book, and, and listeners will understand why as we go through this. But I guess to sort of set the stage, in 2017, you made the decision that you would wear two hats. You would still be a university professor in the Patton College, but you also decided to go back to school uh, because of some personal objectives that you were trying to reach. So to so- sort of set the stage for the listeners, why were you going back to school as a student? What were you trying to do? And, and what was the program that you're in? What was the subject lesson or subject matter that you were trying to learn? Sure. Well, after the 2016 presidential election, like many people, I felt um, concerned and worried. Um, it was not the outcome I'd been hoping for. And so I was looking for a positive outlet for all of that energy because I did not want to spend my time ranting on social media and, (laughs) you know, kind of doing those typical things, although I did a fair share of that as well. (laughs) So I thought, you know, what are my talents? What am I good at? And how can I, you know, direct those toward a positive outcome? So I thought, well, I teach. Mm -hmm. I'm good at that. I feel like international and immigrant communities are feeling very targeted and marginalized right now in this moment. So I got in my head that I was going to get my certificate to teach English as a foreign language and do some service work and then also be of, you know, more use to our international students, many of whom are writing Mm -hmm. dissertations in their second or third or fourth language. And so I did that. I enrolled in um, courses here in the Department of Linguistics and started that program in 2017. Mm -hmm. Now, many of the listeners, especially those in K-12 systems, would know a lot about ESL licensure and certification. But what are some of the examples of courses that you would have taken as part of that certification? Yes. Well, the class I talked the most about in the book and struggled the most in was the introduction to linguistics. And maybe arrogantly, I just wasn't (laughs) that concerned. I thought, you know, I have a doctorate. It's an intro course. (laughs) Right. And, you know, this is an undergraduate course and my background is in English. I'll be great at this. As it turns out, linguistics is much more like math than Mm -hmm like English literature. So um, I learned a lot about morphemes and phonemes and um, the structure of languages. And you really do need to understand all that to teach Mm -hmm. across languages. But again, maybe arrogantly, I did not think of all that. I was thinking much more of kind of the softer skills of teaching, the Mm -hmm. empathy and warmth and cross-cultural competence, which I was pretty good on those factors, but actually learning about you know, the scientific study of language was really challenging. So that was the first two courses, one in person and one mm-hmm. online. And then the rest were more practically oriented, you know, around methods mm-hmm. and um, an actual practicum teaching English as a foreign language, which I did better in those courses and understood them a little bit more. But that first one was very daunting. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, you and I have both been teaching for longer than a minute at yeah. this stage in our careers. Yeah. And you know, you kind of think at this stage that we know the inside baseball of higher education and teaching. And so you would just think, well, I could go into any course now and ace it. 
And that wasn't your experience. It was not at all my experience. And, you know, even though we spend a lot of time in classrooms, we spend a lot of time at the front of classrooms. We make the syllabus. We write the assignments. We are used to having a great deal of control and not having to adjust to someone else's mental model of how assessment is going to work and how the content should be structured. And so the person I had for the class was very good and Mm -hmm. very empathetic and a good teacher and all that. But I'm... I'm used to having that role. So having to adjust to all that was also really humbling and Mm -hmm. educational. Now, before we get into some of the more uh, discreet ways that you described your experiences, there was one other thing in the beginning of your book that you talked about when you were sort of contextualizing the big picture. You talked about, you know, the the learning crisis in higher education. Um, I thought it was interesting how you used that as sort of a lens for sort of understanding the journey that you went through. Can you talk about that connection just a little bit? Yeah, you know, so teaching and writing in higher education, there's a big concern about you know, this really stagnant retention rate. So the six-year retention rate at public universities is still about 59%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a big concern for everyone, for the students taking out the loans, for the universities that want those enrollment numbers. It's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, compounded with student debt and um, kind of all the other issues around student learning. We have a really good big-picture quantitative sense of this, and we keep taking that approach in higher education, which is good but incomplete. So, mm-hmm. so far, what we've mostly been doing is flagging at-risk students. So, you probably notice when you get your class list now, mm-hmm. first-gen students, veteran students, you know, different student demographics are flagged, which is good, but that's still a very big-picture quantitative approach. And I don't know that we've been quite as good at really drilling down into the nitty-gritty of what is it. Mm-hmm. that happens when students struggle because it's not just demography here, yeah. you know? And I, and I think that's where the picture is really incomplete and fuzzy. And that's kind of what I was trying to do, at least through studying my own experience of being a student. And I'm planning to do more research mm-hmm. on my sabbatical in the spring um, and asking the students themselves, you know, mm-hmm. what does struggle look like? What does it feel like? What helps? What hurts? Because that's, that, those are the parts I feel like are really missing from that narrative about the student learning crisis. Yeah, it's so easy, you know, in an era um, for understandable reasons where we turn to big data for all kinds of answers um, to think about the the crises that students experience as being part of a big data narrative. Some of it is. But I also agree with you 100% that so much of a student's academic um, challenges stems from things that would never um, be captured in a big data sense. You know, they they come to college for the first time and see their reading load, and at the same time, they break up with their high school partner. Yeah. You know, that that's not going to get captured in a data set. It's not going to be flagged, but that's the real lived experiences of, you know, students as they go through that transition and relive that transition from one stage to the next as they go through college. Yeah, you know, and I have a young person in my life right now who none of the flags would pick her up. Mm-hmm. She's not first gen. She's not low income. She's not a student of color. But she really struggled because she got some bad advice. She went to a school where she didn't get super prepared for a class that, you know, it, it appeared that she would have been prepared for. And, mm-hmm. you know, she really lost a lot of confidence. You know, obviously, there's a financial hit when students mm-hmm. don't pass a course, you know. So I think Again, those big picture 
you know, data flagging kind of systems, they're good, but they're just not enough. And I think we're so enticed by technical solutions because they give us a feeling of control and, you know, Mm -hmm. they can be generalized and massified. But sometimes that work really is in the small picture of the classroom or the individual student. Yeah. Which is we'll learn is actually what your book does such a, a wonderful job of, of narrating. So um, I feel like I'm about to violate FERPA, okay. um, but you, you talked in your book about a, uh, an experience that you had with a first exam, I think, in that intro course. Yeah. Um, I won't say the grade because then, then all the warning bells would be going off for me. But, you know, talk about that experience of when you received that grade back. And, you know, what was so well done in, in that part of the book is where you talked about the emotions that, you know, you experienced. Um, talk through that a little bit. Well, I'll tell you the grade since it was mine. So <laughs> I got my first test back and I got a 33.5 out of 50, which if, I'll save you the calculation. It's a 67%, <laughs> which was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew I didn't do well. But I have not seen a grade like that in a really long time. So it was just so educational because, you know, I tell students all the time as a professor, you know, when you're stuck, come to office hours, you know, deal with things up front. Don't be ashamed, blah, blah, blah. I did not do any of those things. (laughs) I did the opposite of those things. I hid the grade from everyone. I made sure no one saw it. So my first reaction, even in class, was to cover it up. Mm -hmm. You know, I went back to my office. I did some online therapy shopping, um, <laughs> you know, played around on Twitter. I, I did not do anything productive or proactive in response to that for a while because it was so paralyzing. Yeah. I just thought, wow, th- this is the best I could do. And I'm not sure what to do. So it was really, it made me a much better teacher because I now know how hollow those words are. Mm-hmm. That if you can't really identify, like, look, you might feel this way. And it's okay to wallow in that a little bit. And I've also felt that way. And like, let's just talk it through. Yeah. I don't know exactly what you should do, but, you know, let's at least kind of start the conversation. I feel like I have a lot more credibility with students now that I can say, oh, I know. <laughs> I know what that feeling is. And not from 30 years ago, from yeah. two years ago. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the um, messages that um, we talked about as a leadership team meeting first year students was to find ways to empathize with them about, you know, talking about some of our own struggles that we had. But you're right. I mean, yours is much more recent in um, that I I can see how that would be an instant way of connecting with students in a way that would be more difficult for people who have not been on the student side of the classroom recently. Yeah. And I think it means something to them Mm -hmm. to hear, um, Yeah, there's that moment of confusion and that moment of paralysis. And, you know, we say, you know, jump right back on the horse or, you know, all these expressions. But to actually do that requires being known and being seen and having, you know, I I hate to say an adult because our students are adults. But, you know, an older adult say, yes, I can really I can understand why you would want to hide or why you would want Mm -hmm. to. Those things look really illogical, but they're not, you know, when you're stuck and you don't. No, to do that fight or flight or freeze, that's mm-hmm, really what's mm-hmm. kicking in for them. And until mm-hmm. they can articulate that and 
you know, have a reasonable assurance that someone on the other side is going to understand that. They just don't. They hide. And I watch the students around me in the class do that, too. Yeah. 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 You, th- I want to read a quote um, that came uh, out of your book um, because it relates to something that you've already sort of touched on. The quote is, it, it took two weeks before I summoned the courage to tell my own wife about my first test grade. I didn't tell anyone else uh, about the extent of my struggles in this course until I had passed it. On the surface, this this can seem like a fairly benign story of ego, but the ramifications are consequential. It appears that for some students, their experience of fear and shame is so incapacitating that all they can do is quietly disappear from a class. I thought that was a really impactful um, part from your book. There were many, but it stuck out to me that, you know, oftentimes when we you know, sort of narrate uh, a quote unquote typical story of students having distress. Um, This idea of concealment is not always part of that narrative. And, you know, why did you conceal it? You've already mentioned that you saw other students conceal it, but why, why, you know, what is the, what's an explanation for why that would be sort of one of the natural reactions? Because once I read that, I could remember instances when I was an uh, undergraduate um, in high school where I would get bad grades and would not tell anyone and actually fear the moment that it would become more public, like my parents would find out or my advisor would find out during, you know, advising week or whatever. Yeah. I think it's just natural self-protection, you know, like you don't – we face things that we know what to do about, Mm -hmm. right? So – you know, I had a hard time finding a parking spot when I came over. I know. <laughs> there, there are other places. I, you know, I wasn't particularly afraid yeah. of that. And I wasn't, even if I get a ticket, it's not going to break the bank, right? Like, I'm not, I can face that problem head on because I have some idea of what to do. But when you do your best, you know, I think it's easy to not realize what a vulnerable position students are in, in mm-hmm. classes, especially those that are not intuitive to them, you know. So you actually do give it your best. And this was the best you could do. Mm-hmm. And now you don't know what to do. I think there's that natural self-protection, defensiveness. Um, you know, it's interesting. A story I told in the book is there were two women who sat next to me in class. And they did, they did not even appear to know each other before the first test. But after that first test, they started talking to each other, kind of being mildly disruptive, playing on their phones. And I could read that as they were really disassociating. You know, they were kind of lost. They didn't know what to do. But I think if I hadn't been sitting next to them, you know, if I'd been the teacher in front, they would just look like students who don't care. Students mm-hmm. who are kind of checked out. I, first of all, I wouldn't have noticed that it started after the first test. Mm-hmm. They did not do any of this before the first test. Um, and I think a lot of times these disassociating behaviors, they kind of just look like bad student mm-hmm. behaviors. And I think I sort of had that theory before struggling that, you know, some students care, some don't, some can be convinced to care. Um, But what I've learned is a lot of the behaviors that just look illogical or apathetic are responses to Mm -hmm. fear. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a useful takeaway for me. And as I've talked about this book with other faculty, I've I've heard lights come on for people like, oh, yeah, you know, I actually have some students like that who, I mean, not that, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that students never check out or yeah. don't care. But I think a lot more of that is stress, self-protection, not knowing what to do. And if you can kind of get in there with them and talk through that stuff, I think sometimes that can be more helpful than just assuming they don't care. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very interesting. You, you talked about um, 
sort of two emotions so far, fear and shame, are ones that you highlight in the book and that have already come out in your narrative a little bit. Are there any other emotions that you feel like were discrete that came out during that process? I think paralysis was the big one of just not, you know, it's related to those ideas of, and I think especially, I would imagine this happens with high achieving students too, you know, the, the longer you go before you hit a wall academically, probably the worse it hurts, right? So when I was at Stanford, I had a student who, like many Stanford students, never struggled, did a really great, phenomenal work all the way through you know, elementary school, high school, college, and then her last year of medical school, she really struggled and had this huge existential crisis of maybe I've been an imposter my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I can't actually do any of this. Maybe teachers just liked me. You know, all those tapes kind of started playing in her head. Right, right. And I felt that in this class. I thought, you know, it it made me question my competencies in other Mm-hmm. areas like wow you know there are undergrads in this class doing better than me <laughs> like, that doesn't feel good yeah but I would imagine for them too you know there had to be other students in that class who you know most students it wasn't their major so this was a little bit outside of um kind of students right. normal courses and you know I think when that hits you later you do start to feel the confusion and the imposter feelings mm-hmm. and you know have a hard time of knowing where to where to put those you, I, I don't recall you talking about in this specific term uh, in the book, but you know you're well versed in in education literature, and so theories of fixed versus malleable intelligence. Yeah, was this something that ever you know since you brought up the idea of the imposter phenomenon, your reaction to the grade and that sort of thing, were you having mental dialogue with yourself about like, oh no, I'm becoming an entity theorist? Uh, you know? Yeah, and and I mean. As as somebody that understands this so well, how are you reconciling that, knowing what the right answer should be, but then sort of these natural instincts kicking you in another direction? Actually, it was really good for me because, you know, I've been teaching fixed mindset, growth mm-hmm. mindset stuff, and grit, which is really related mm-hmm. for a long time. And th- those are useful concepts, I think, when you pretty much know what you're doing and you're just stuck. So, you know, when I'm trying to write, sometimes I have to remind myself of Yes, growth. Growth happens through effort. There are no academic writing prodigies. I just need to push through this mm-hmm. this struggle and it'll be fine. And that's true. But I think when you're lost, it's not actually that useful. Because what happened is, because I believe these things, after I got the first test grade back, I did all the things that Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth would say are good ideas. Yeah. You know, I studied harder. I worked, you know, in a more concentrated fashion. I... You know, I persevered, I, you know, was gritty, and I got the same grade on the second Mm -hmm. test as I did on the first one. So it turned out to be a little experiment. And, you know, if you're that little hamster in the wheel and you're stuck, running faster is not going to cut it. So I think they're useful ideas, but I think they're limiting and almost like a little bit victim blaming in a way Mm -hmm. about, you know, some things can be solved through effort. Sometimes you have to learn how to get out of the hamster ball and try a whole different yeah. paradigm. Yeah, you know? that makes sense. I mean, you yeah. can, I mean, in anything where it involves practice, whether it's studying a sport, whatever, if you're, if you're, if you're practicing the wrong way, 
right. then you can't get better. You know, yes. you need some way to break it. You're right, break out of that. Um, another section in the book, uh, another quote I just want to read really quickly. You wrote, for some reason, it's easy to minimize the role of peers in higher education, the assumption that being in college, students should have outgrown the need to sit by their friends in class. You then go on to describe a relationship that you developed with, is it Rashimi? It's a pseudonym, but uh, right, okay. we'll go with Close Rashmi. enough. All yep. right. Yeah. Rashmi, okay. Yeah. Um, can you talk about um, how you met Rashami and sort of the nature of that relationship and how it impacted um, how your emotions went through peaks and valleys? Sure. Well, this was just a funny fluke. So um, Rashmi is the daughter of one of my friends. Mm. And so I happened to be at a dinner party at her house right before spring semester of 2017 started and I mentioned I was going to take this class and um, they were joking like oh Reshmi's also taking a linguistics class wouldn't it be funny if you were in the same one and then we looked it up and <laughs> lo and behold we were in the same one so at first it was you know just kind of nice to have my friend's daughter in there but she did not do well in the first test either she did not do as poorly as I did but um <laughs> She did not do well, and she's an honor student and mm -hmm. not used to that either. So we were both kind of freaking out about this a little bit. Um, but then we just started texting each other, you know, hey, I think this is the answer. You know, when we'd be doing our homework, I think it's this. What do you think? Um, and then, you know, we started thinking together more, and I realized, wow, this is how real life works, right? When you're stuck, mm -hmm. you ask people, you consult, and you troubleshoot and puzzle through things together. And why don't we let students do this more or mm -hmm. not even let, but encourage, you know, and I really draw a sharp line between this and kind of the dreaded group work that students don't always love. Ah, you have to be in a group and your grades are dependent on each other. And, you know, right. here's this thing you must do together. But instead of forcing it, why don't we let them consult? Because sometimes the way she was thinking about something made more sense. And sometimes mm -hmm. I would have a light bulb moment. And so, I realize, especially when you're struggling, it's a way out of the hamster ball, I yeah. guess, is because you yeah. get access to another brain, you know, and it's one that's experiencing the same thing as you are, and it's about at your level, too. So while, you know, I did go to office hours, I, I braved those eventually, <laughs> you know, I talked to people who had linguistics degrees, and they uh -huh. were helpful in their own ways, but what was more helpful is to have somebody having the exact same experience and to be able to kind of see where the other one was struggling and help each other through that in the way you just would in life when you're yeah. stuck on a problem. You know, I remember um, pr pretty distinctly, uh, I reached a stage in my undergraduate um, time and, you know, I was in the hamster wheel. I had probably, yeah. <laughs> I had probably reached the peak of what was going to be possible for me unless I did something different and probably was going to start regressing pretty quickly. Um, and it was exactly what you just described about um, connecting with other students, not in group work assignments, but just sort of a survival of togetherness yeah. that were, and it was, you know, it was classes like rhetorical theory and, you know, classes like that, that had some meat to them where we really just had to sit down and verbalize through some things. And, you know, there would be moments when we would collectively get, you know, the wrong meaning behind what we were being taught, but more often than not, that did not happen. And I think you're so right that those serendipitous, um, those serendipitous opportunities of learning with each other as peers um, is sort of like what you have to figure out for most people as they're going through, especially a more complex learning situation. Um, I, I so agree with that. 
because yeah. because it not only changes the learning opportunities, but it changes sort of the emotional orientation towards that because it's a togetherness rather than an isolated event. Yeah, there's both the academic and emotive mm-hmm. part of that that I think is, mm-hmm. you know, really the sum being greater than the, I can't, I never say that the right way, but basically some, the some synergistic great, yeah. part of that, yeah, you yeah. know, that yeah. you're too str- somehow two struggling brains <laughs> gets you through struggle more than one yeah. struggling no, brain. Right. And, I, and I think it's, I think there's also that idea of, I mean, part of why I didn't drop the class was Reshmi, you mm-hmm. know, and she's a classy enough kid. I don't think she would have, <laughs> you know, ratted me out, but I didn't want to leave her yeah. there yeah. in the class either. And so I think when you develop those bonds and you also see you know i don't think any less of her that she didn't get a perfect grade right. on the test you know it, it, it has that psychological benefit too yeah one of the great things in this book for people to understand when they read about your narrated experience is sort of the 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 timeline and trajectory of emotions and that was one of the things when i came away after reading it that i that i was really you know incredibly impressed but it also brought meaning because of some of the things that i've done research on is that it's 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 really important i think for teachers um, and i think also students to understand that there is a trajectory to emotional experiences there are ups and downs and peaks and valleys and that what your book really points out is that when you get to the valleys there are different directions and paths through which you can go and you know you kind of tell the story about two different paths one of one of isolation and one of connection and there are great lessons in there and i just think it would be great for people to understand that because learning is an emotional experience and that's really my message that I get from the book, other readers might get others, but I, that's something I really wanted to commend you on. It's great to see that story in print. Thank you. So I, I do want to transition to talk about a few other things. You mentioned previously that whereas this intro class um, probably had some online elements but was more blended, but then you had some other more uh, fully online experiences. Mm-hmm. How did how did you, you know, what was your experiences like that coming back as a, as a teacher, you know, having taught and and then experiencing a learning environment like that, that I'm guessing would have been fairly foreign to when you were an, you know, undergraduate and graduate student. Yeah, it, I definitely did not take any online classes. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, back in the day, I've taught online, um, but I do it very much in a way that indicates I'm a much more comfortable classroom teacher. So mm-hmm. you know, I have videos and all that, but I still meet with my students one on one. It's amazing to me how often students want to meet in person. Yeah. Like even in like in our program, they can choose an online or an in-person degree. And even the people who choose online often want to meet in person. So that tells me something about that need to connect, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the flesh and blood sense of that. Um, my online courses were they were OK, um, but they were not evocative in the sense that by two. So. The first class and the last class were all in person, mm-hmm. and then the middle three were online. And you know, I did. I watched some interesting videos. I read some interesting things. Um, but had those been more difficult, I might have actually dropped them because I, you know, you're not seeing the other students. You're not really connecting in that way. Um, and I think that you know, pretty consistently, student satisfaction with online courses is lower. Than in person, and that's not to say they're never good because right. you know I can see some advantages. I, I teach a writing class online, for example, mm-hmm. and there are some good things about it, um, such as the really high performers not freaking out the people who yeah. are really struggling. You know, they don't see each other in that right. same sense. Right. Um, 
and being able to watch things repeatedly if you need them. I mean, there are some definite benefits, but on the whole, I have to say, I did, I did miss that personal connection. Um, and even my, I had a really, I had a pretty good online class, but I, the whole time I kept thinking, I really want to meet this person. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to see the other people in the class. These people that are writing these really great posts, like I would like to know them in ways that, you know, just weren't possible in that format. Yeah. That notion that being able to interact with peers is, you know, really important. Since you do teach courses online, do you envision ways that through an online environment that that sort of opportunity for serendipitous peer learning from each other can occur? It can in some classes where the students already know each other. You know, so actually one time I was teaching an online class in leadership and these two students would really fight on the discussion board. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, you know. First of all, I kind of appreciated it because a lot of times people are very benign in their online posts. And so I I appreciated the passion and the fervor, but, and they weren't inappropriate, but I thought, wow, is this a thing? Well, then I learned from another student that these two people know each other in real life and are friendly and this is, this is just what they do. And so in my writing class too, a lot of those students already know each other. And so they feel very comfortable contacting Mm -hmm. each other online and then getting together in person or you know, FaceTiming or whatever it is. So I think if the relationship has been built somewhere, it can happen. Um, And I know, you know, I'm not necessarily against online education, but I am concerned about it as a replacement. Mm -hmm. I think it's fine augmenting, but especially given the student mental health issues and, you know, how much isolation people report and anxiety, you know, I I would hate to see us do this just for you know, the perceived financial benefit, yeah. which I think is often overstated given the costs of it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Rather than good pedagogical design. And my experience certainly would say, I mean, just my very limited <clears throat> experience, I, I definitely got more value in the in-person mm-hmm. classes. You know, it's interesting. One of the other podcasts we're doing in, in this season um, is on uh, the topic of loneliness. And it's actually from uh, a, a, a person uh, the dean of religious life at USC, who's talking about that in an on-campus sense. Yeah, you know, loneliness on campus where you're surrounded by you know thousands of other students. And you're right. I mean, I think that um, the the worry is that an online only experience um, only perpetuates that you know to some to some level. And so then the trick is how do you you know who can figure out how to create a sense of community um, that can take place and let people make connections even though they're separated by distance. And, you know, that's a challenge, I think, for online education as a whole yeah. to how to start replicating some of that collegiate experience, if you will, um, or, or community experience that you get when you actually are face-to-face with people. Um, you know, so you've, you've talked about um, this in passing already a little bit, but, you know, through the experiences chronicled in your book, what are things that you're thinking about differently now as you enter the classroom? As a teacher, not a student. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do office hours really differently, yeah. especially when students are struggling. Mm-hmm. So I think I was a decent teacher before, but I used to do the classic thing of you would come to office hours and I'd say, well, we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And if the student's lost, that's not particularly helpful. So now I kind of feel that out. And if they are lost, I kind of give them the greatest hits of things people struggle with. And mm-hmm. it's usually the writing class that I teach that people struggle with. So I, I say, here's some things it might be. Is it hard to narrow down a topic? Is it hard to 
pick a thesis. You know, mm-hmm. is it hard to balance? You don't want to write a book report and you don't want to write a raving editorial either. Right. You know, like, yeah. and usually, even if it's not one of those things, the student, A, they're relieved that they're not the first person who's struggled in this class because I have this menu of options to give them. Um, but also that I think they get that I have some sense of what might be mm-hmm. tough and it gets the conversation going. Um, and I was always hesitant to do that because I, you know, I think politically and just constitutionally, I'm not like a hierarchy authoritative person, but I've started to read being a little bit more directive with young people is actually helpful mm-hmm. and not, you know, me trying to lord my <laughs> professorialness over them necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm willing to do that more. I've, I've become more comfortable with um, kind of trying to get the students to meet me halfway and, you know, indicating to them that I understand what some struggles might be. Mm-hmm. I also require office hours now, which I never did before, but I had a student who I, she was struggling in my class while I was struggling in the linguistics classes, but then she got a lot better. And so fortunately, I thought to ask her, you know, how, how, how do you think your improvement has worked in this? It was actually a couple classes we had together. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you made us go to office hours in the third class, which I do mm-hmm. with the online students, so I connect mm-hmm. with them. And I was surprised. I said, you know, why didn't you come before? I thought we had a good rapport. You know, I feel like you would come. And she's like, well, you know, students, students think office hours are for super nerdy or super struggling Students, and if you're just kind of in the middle, you're yeah. not sure if you should go, and you don't want to bother the professor, and um, so I think just normalizing things that to us it just seems logical. Of course, students would go, but to just you know make that a requirement, everybody's going to sign up for this, everybody's going. It doesn't mean anything one way or the other if you come to office hours. I think that kind of stuff, just just those little tweaks in the structure and in mm-hmm. the assumptions of how I work with students I think has helped because worst case then you have a student who comes who really didn't need a lot and you, you know. You have a pleasant conversation yeah. is over. You have a pleasant conversation <laughs> yeah. and then that's it. But then I think you catch, yeah. you start to create a safety net to catch those students who yeah. might be hiding. Well, it's sort of the personalized version of the big data. I mean, you're, yeah. you, know, you get, you actually get so much more information through a 15 minute conversation about what that student might need. And so it makes sense that that would, you know, provide a lot of opportunities for you as an instructor um, to really start to figure out what's going on with the student, you know, especially, you know, the, the murky middle students that are, that are um, students that could be getting a B plus, but they're getting a B minus, you know, I mean, in our traditional grade books, that's not something that would ever stand out, but, you know, through a conversation, you could figure out, okay, that person could be doing quite a bit better actually with just a few tweaks that they're just not getting right now so yeah yeah you know and to go back to the online point too i guess that's what concerns me is you can't read affect mm-hmm. even in video we know the eyes don't come across the same right and you're right in that 15 minutes you get a lot more than necessarily in the big data situation and so i'm concerned in a time when students feel isolated and anxious and you know we have this kind of burgeoning mental health crisis i I want more effect. I want mm-hmm. more opportunities to read where they are and how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when all of that goes online, I get very concerned that we're not going to be able to see those signs mm-hmm. the same way. If we flip the coin and you were thinking about yourself as a student again, or 
maybe more appropriately, if you were giving advice to students as they come into college or start a new major, whatever, you know, a transition moment, what do you, what would you recommend for them knowing that they're going to experience challenges, whether it's a 60 some percent on an exam, um, a paper that comes back with a lot of red ink on it, you know, those sorts of things that are just part of being a student, you know, what's your advice for them? Well, the two things that actually really helped me were things I did not know to look for. So, and this is really hard given the socioeconomic realities that students today are facing, but there's this idea of slack that helped. And I, I think students don't get enough time to tinker with stuff. I mean, the way I did not get a 33.5 out of 50 on my third test <laughs> is I, I just thought, you know, nothing I'm doing is working. So I'm just going to watch videos from other universities. I'm just going to ask my international students, many of whom have a background in linguistics. You know, I'm just going to mm-hmm. start messing around and playing with these ideas because I was still intellectually interested in it, even though it was hard mm-hmm. for me. And that's when I started to get unstuck, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think our students today, they have such compressed schedules and they're trying to put in so much padding on the resume and all of that. And I, I know it's really it's hard advice to follow, but I think they almost have to do the counterintuitive thing of do less with greater depth, mm-hmm. you know, build in time to just play around with ideas because that's when you actually develop the creative thinking skills that get you unstuck and help you solve problems. So I think that's the big thing. And then the other thing is, you know, find people you can talk to, you know, find your Reshmi who, mm-hmm. you know, you can troubleshoot with and ask questions and, you know, complain about the professor if you want to, you know, whatever those things are that help both academically and psychologically when you're dealing with struggle. And that's going to change from, you know, importantly, people should understand, I hope, that that's going to change from one learning situation to the next, that it's not, you don't find one person and then that's your person for everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because each learning, each learning situation is a little bit different. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just have to say that, you know, I told you an email that I thought your book was so awesome in so many ways. I think it's because you and I are both interested in this idea of emotion and affect. And, you know, whereas I study um, the quantitative side of it, I've always been searching for some things to point to as the narrative exemplification of, you know, things that I thought was lurking out there, but the numbers don't fully bring to light. And your book really did that. So, you know, I, I would highly encourage um, listeners, you know, to pick this up because I think it really does present a compelling narrative about what the student experience is like um, from somebody that's very knowledgeable about the the education process that's going on at the same time that you're experiencing it. So congratulations on a really great book. Well, thanks so much. That means so much to me. And I also really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. So yeah. you'll have to be a regular. Excellent. I, I think actually your second time on, you are a regular now. So <laughs> Wonderful. I'm already <laughs> so a regular. Great. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, uh, my guest today, as you all know, is Dr. Laura Harrison, Associate Professor in the Ohio University Patton College of Education. Her book recently published is titled Teaching Struggling Students Lessons Learned from Both Sides of the Classroom. As I said, a link for that is in the text accompanying the podcast and uh, would encourage um, listeners to pick that up to learn more about Laura's story and also the suggestions that she had. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook and send us a direct message. Our audio engineer and associate
associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a great day.